This is Fam Electric Ghost, and we are live on our Twitch, YouTube, Facebook channels with Kevin Stratton. We're very excited to have him on the air for the first time. And um, we've been a podcaster since 2018. This year, we transitioned into video podcasting, and we're really excited to be talking to a to a man like Kevin. And you're going to find out why in the next hour. So, welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you. Should I call you Keith or Phantom Ghost? Well, Phantom Electric Ghost is my full name, or PEG is the acronym. But uh, yeah, you can call me Keith. <laughs> or you call me. You could call me Josephine. Like, how you doing? I'm Josephine Electric. <laughs> I'm the lead singer of the band, so maybe I should introduce myself sometimes. Uh, you know, I'll let Keith t- take over because you know that might be too hard to handle. <laughs> Okay, I'll just I'll just call you Mr. Ghost. Yeah, it might be the best thing. <laughs> so maybe start like at the beginning, like I was, you know, reading up everything about you. You know, you you you've done like Grammy award-winning albums with people like Chicago, Toto, Stevie Wonder, Thomas Dolby, Van Halen. Um, you work with HBO Productions, Netflix, Amazon. And the thing, being a synth head like me, um, you know, all the synth drones out there probably listening right now, is that you're instrumental in the development of the DX7, which if anybody's a big synth head, we know what that is in terms of FM synthesis, in terms of the patch design and, um, you know, wherever you want to start. But I think, you know, I think when I send you the questions, like I, I start with most of the people I talk to, I talk about like, when did you get, become interested in music? Like, what age did you get interested in how to kind of seg to where you are now? Right. Um, I, you know, I've been doing this for 35 years and, uh, and it's been a long road, but I was, uh, fortunate enough, I guess, in the right places at the right time or doing the right things. But one of the biggest things I think that kicked my career off is when we first started programming the, the DX7, um, I was one of like four people on the entire planet that could program it. And there's a story about how that all came to be. But um, yeah, let's start with, uh, okay, so um, I'm primary, primarily a keyboardist um, and a horn player. Uh And when I was growing up, my mom had to hold a ruler over my hands that so that I would practice music. And it wasn't until I uh, found a buddy that turned me on to some like big band jazz and uh, things like that. Um, I played second trumpet and uh, a big band that was led by uh, uh, Jim Schumacher from uh the tommy the new tommy dorsey orchestra obviously and um i was like one of the youngest members there and um there was this competition uh, i think it was done by i don't know if any of you guys remember downbeat magazine yeah i remember i, I used to pick that up well when they used to have magazines at the store <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, it's all virtual but yeah, that and Keyboard Magazine, I one one I would pick up with Rolling Stones and everything. 
so I wrote this little uh, kind of Jeff Lober fusion uh, piece. Interesting fact about Jeff Lorber fusion. Um, in later years, he became a good friend of mine. But do you know who his sax player was? No, no, I don't. His name was Kenny Gorlick. Kenny Gorlick. Oh, Kenny G? Kenny G. <laughs> B- before he was Kenny G. <laughs> before he realized that maybe he should cut it down because that's the way you do it in showbiz, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wrote this. I wrote this little jazz ditty and um, ended up winning um, the Downbeat Award. And uh, did that open doors because you got that? Um, no, it made things a little more complex because it was it was just enough money that made me want to go, and it was just not enough money to really to keep me there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a difficult thing, but um, I'll tell you a little story about that. At the time, I was playing in a. Uh, uh, a rock fusion band. We had three horns. Mm-hmm. Actually, I played horn and keyboards at the same time. Wow! And um, like yeah, a trumpet or a sax? A uh, trumpet. Trumpet, yeah. And then we had a sax player, um, and a bone player. Mm. So, um, you can imagine we were doing Earth, Wind, and Fire, and things like this. All right, that's awesome. Put that aside for a second. Now, uh, when I won uh, the Downbeat Award, I had to go to Chicago to the Blackstone uh, Theater mm-hmm. to accept my scholarship and my award. It just so happened that the ceremony is on a night that I was doing a um, a college mixer down in Bloomington, Illinois, which is like two and a half hours away. So literally, I went in the room, grabbed my award, ran out, changed <laughs> out of my, you know, my black and blues. And um, and as I was coming out of the, the bathroom, I literally ran into this guy and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he goes, no problem, no problem. And my friend John that was with me, he goes, do you know who that was? And uh, anyway, it's a long story, but um, we can probably move on from there. Yeah. So I guess we'll segue into that at some point. <laughs> but um, yeah, so you've been you've been working on it since you were you know in your schooling days. And then yeah. what I wanted to know is like, like you were on on horns you're on acoustic instruments what made you want to get into electronic instruments um well i was working in uh well a lot of the music that i was listening to uh um uh, you know like heavy weather and um and uh you know a lot of the jazz fusion groups that were in the 70s Herbie Hancock uh, and, and Chick Corea and things like that, of course. Sun Ra Wyman. So <laughs> I went I went to uh uh to Berkeley <laughs> for a short time. 
And then I got another scholarship while I was there. And I ended up at the University of Chicago. So, um, and there's plenty of stories there. But I studied under the tutelage of Dr. John Chowning, who was the inventor of FM um, synthesis. Um, did you pick his course because of that? Or you just kind of, how did you fall into No, I, I picked it because of that. Because I had already been programming the fm synthesizer um i would work like i said i worked in a music store oh so and uh, access to it so you have access to gear even if you're broke yeah thank you working at guitar center <laughs> so you can buy your marshall stack for your band <laughs> yeah <laughs> the um i guess the 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 that was the biggest blessing was actually not staying at Berkeley and uh, going to the University of Chicago. Um, the first year I was at the University of Chicago. Um, okay, great little tale. Um, uh, my dorm room was the size of most people's closets. <laughs> it, but it was just one person, so I didn't have to share it with anybody. Right. That might be a good thing. <laughs> but it was the only dorm room. And yeah, these buildings were built back in the whatever, you know, old days, old days, yeah. early 1800s or whatever. Um, it was the only room where if you opened my window, you could crawl out on the roof, which was like a castle, you know. <laughs> That's cool. So I had a lot of guys coming. In there, so they could hang out and do do what what I figured they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Hey, Kev, can we get through your window? <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. Do. Going up and doing a little of the ganji, and uh, yeah. you know, drinking a few beers. Well, one night I, I, I uh, Yamaha was having an open stage night. Well, I done a bunch of material, right? Mm -hmm kind of to demo off all the fancy stuff and I'd written some things and um most of my friends on my floor they knew all about all this so they go man it's an open stage night it was a friday night kind of like tonight <laughs> and um they said come on man come on man you got to go you got to go and I, and I may have parked took in a well maybe it was just being in the room i don't know yeah well, let's leave it at that <laughs> i mean at this point i'm 19 years old right yeah yeah and so finally i said fine i'll go over to uh, i can't remember whitecliffe hall or whatever it was and um and uh fine i'll see if they'll take me so I grabbed my little briefcase full of five and a half or five and three quarter inch floppy disks. And they can load it on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is old school, dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no cell phones, no internet. So, yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so I went over there and they let me on stage. And of course, Yama had all their gear there in all its glory. And I'm like, well, I know how to use this. <laughs> what was there? What did they actually have? 
Um, they had a TX-816, mm. um, which is eight DX-7s in a rack. That's awesome. I would, I would then, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was power, man. I would actually um, like that better than the DX-7. I used to have that. <laughs> yeah, well, every horn patch that I ever created sounded huge with the 816, but... Um, I did a remake of uh, um, uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Oh, okay. I know and uh, lots of strings, lots of horns, piano, etc. And uh, anyway, I got up there and did about four or five songs. You know? And I just flew through everything because actually I had the same rig at the music store that I worked for. So I just, was there, what kind of, was it like a DX seven type of keyboard or a DX one? KX, uh, KX 88. Yeah. So controller. For the rack. Uh, yeah. For the rack, a QX one sequencer. Um, was that not MIDI? The QX one. I mean, all the controllers are those, were those MIDI controllers or were those like, uh, pro, uh, proprietary connector type stuff. No, it was it was all straight up, pretty generic MIDI. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, I did my thing. Uh, when I got off stage, um, I recognized this person, but um, didn't know who they were, and uh, they asked me if I wanted to go to dinner. <laughs> and the long and short of it is, how would you like to live in Los Angeles? And so began my trails with uh, <laughs> Yamaha. So you got picked up at a like like the way like uh, like uh, I guess um Buffalo Springfield was playing like in L.A. and they got picked up by you know people like they were looking for bands. So somebody was looking for somebody like you, and they found you. Yeah, I don't know if they were looking or whatever, but uh, maybe they were hoping. <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, it was just an open stage night, and yeah. um, and uh, you know, they were promoting their gear, and um, you know, and I also um, studied under at the University of Chicago. I am very lucky to have studied under Suzanne Siani and also Wendy Carlos. Oh, Wendy Carlos, like Moog, Moog fame. Yeah, big yeah fame. so it was big Moog fan, so. <laughs> it was it was one of these things where I I I just felt I made the right decision. But that yeah. starts the next part of the tale. Did you want to <laughs> sorry I don't mean to get long-winded on you? No, no, that's cool. I mean, because like like so you had your foot in the door into FM synthesis by the guru, the guy who kind of invent they invented it. You're hanging out with Wendy Carlos, who's like a Moog, famous Moog head. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a big, you know, I've got like three Moogs that I use in my room behind me right now. <laughs> um, but it's like, it's interesting that, that you, you know, you, Berkeley was where everybody probably wants to go. And then you went to Chicago and then you found this other path. And then Yamaha found you. And so maybe you can kind of, 
take off there. Like, where did you start? What what type of bo- machines were you working on at Yamaha first? Um, well, first they brought me in, and there's this like little secret lab down in the basement. It's not really secret, but we like to call it our secret lab. And um, they took me down there, asked me to do a couple songs for them. Then, um, then they said, show us these patches. And so Gary Lewenberger and I um, uh, can't remember who else was there. Uh, uh, Mark Koning. Uh, some the product leaders um, for the DX products. They said, what is this? And it, it's like, I had all sorts of crazy stuff. I had uh, patches that sounded just like the Chicago horns, which is a story that we can get to later. Um, you know, I had, well, some of the most beautiful electric pianos and stuff like that. And they go, you programmed all this. This is nuts. Oh, I also had this patch where you could press every octave on the DX seven and it would say, I am a DX seven. I remember seeing that at the store. (laughs) Did you get to see that? I think I saw that. I think I could have sworn somebody showed me that one time back in the day. I mean, it's totally useless, but it just goes to show that if you can control the formants um, in a sound. um, I do remember seeing that in a guitar center or something. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my patches got way around. I would give out like banks to. um, Well, anyway, so I started traveling um, initially, uh, just traveling, doing uh, shows. I designed NAM shows. Um, Let me step back a little bit. Like, how did you get so comfortable with the DX7 architecture? Was it because you had studied under, a, you know, someone who had designed FM synthesis that you naturally took what you learned and were able to really understand the DX7? Like, did you really like totally just get the DX7, and that's why you could do what you were doing? <laughs> I'd love to say that was the easy answer, but that's not really what happened. I mean, a lot of what Dr. John Chowning showed me was all the technical data, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, one of the most important things about programming anything um, that is a synthesis device, right? Not a subtractive synthesis, mm-hmm. you know, but a true synthesizer um is knowing the instrument that you're heading for and and um because at the end of the day you can have the most beautiful bosendorfer piano and i've got a beautiful one here in my nord stage three but when you go to record it unless you're just recording that piano you're going to butcher it by the time you're done in production. You know, you're going to get rid of these frequencies so that the bass doesn't over resonate or it gets out of the way of the vocals, you know? And, um, so,
so yeah i mean if you heard most pianos in major mixes they sound thin and weak is it because they just eq them out because they, well, they, they just have to to get everything else to fit in the mix in and this is something I, I learned a while back, but I, I, I never really thought of it about it because I would just lay down tracks and tracks and tracks and tracks, right? And then just try to mix them with volume, right? Yeah. Then I realized, hey, the bass is getting in my way, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I either pull down the bass and leave the piano where it's at, and that sounds weird. So... You know, I learned I had to cut those frequencies or use a dynamic, um, you know, EQ compressor or something to to when the bass kicks in, you pull those piano frequencies down. Right. Let yeah. it back up. You yeah. know, um, this was a whole brand new world for me um, working in the studio with some of these guys um, at Yamaha. So but and in any synthesis. It's important that you understand that you have to know what you're looking for, yeah. right? And if you go, I'm going after a flute sound or I'm going after this. Well, anybody can pull up a sine wave and create a flute sound and throw a bunch of reverb on it. and Maybe it'll pass with the right envelope. But what I realized is that in everything we do, and this didn't even become popular until like the 90s. Mm -hmm. In everything we do, um, there's stuff. <laughs> and what I mean is there's stuff. There's fingers yeah. squeaking across yeah. the fretboard. Yeah. There's and um there's uh, there's chips in the in the flute that um that maybe somewhat yeah. random. Yeah, I think yeah. what I what I've learned over time is um, I, I I think I told you before I don't use a DAW. I, I use hardware recorders. I use like Tascams and stuff because I like to capture, you know, my Moogs and my analog stuff, like with their full full breadth of their signal, and I don't like cutting them down because I like what they sound like naturally, kind of like like you were talking about the piano and then people kind of edit it out. I'm the kind of guy like I want to hear that whole thing, and I might just and, focus and, on that. And that's totally cool because that type of recording gives you more of a live, natural yeah. feel. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want a more produced, grass kind, of kind of track that sounds smooth and you know all that, then yeah, you're. It's inevitable. <laughs> Well, it seems like today in the DAW, everybody's looking for the perfect, beautiful sound, right? And 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 I think part of it, what you're saying is like, if you're going to design a guitar, you should understand how a guitar player plays, how he slides the fretboard, how he modulates, how he bends the notes. You know, you look yes. at Hendrix. You Before you even clap. go about trying to create yeah. it, and yeah. even if I gave you the best horn patch in the world, I watched people take feels one of my crowning achievements is my Chicago horns and um, which by the way was on I think 
my second Grammy album, um, Chicago 17, uh, 25 or 6 to 4, the remake, the big, huge, you know, with all the horns. And uh, Robert Lamb was talking to me and he goes, I want something that will fatten up our three horn players, you know, make it sound bigger than life. Like we added like three more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a little more complex than that but um um i ended up doing that uh to back up the horns you know um you know they're front in the mix but uh anyway so my point was you can give somebody a great guitar patch you can give somebody a great uh horn patch or whatever but if you don't know how to play the instrument or at least haven't studied how the instrument is played, mm -hmm. um, then there's a very good chance that you're not going to sound like a horn, <laughs> you know, or a guitar. Yeah. I mean, if you, you want to listen to like, like a great, you know, sax, yeah, I'm going to listen to Coltrane or I'm going to listen to Sun Ra. I'm going to listen to some really good jazz, right? I might right. listen to like jazz and silhouette by sunrise, like a great bebop classic, and listen to the how the how the saxes and the horns are on that record. And even the piano on the record, like if I want to design something, you know, on my Moog and I'm trying to emulate that, I'm kind of going for what I heard, you know, in that in that sound. And I mean, I play I play a woodwind, I play a clarinet, so I have an understanding of how you use a reed. I oh, really? I, yeah, yeah. I started on a clarinet. I've got a, a WX5 up here. I do all my horn lines with uh, a MIDI wind instrument. Yeah, I've, I've been wanting one of those for a long time because I've, I've been wanting or incorporate my clarinet playing, and I never, I really never mic'd my clarinet because I didn't, it didn't really come out good. Um, so I figured, like, one day I want to get one of these wind controllers and actually do wind parts in the way that a clarinet can do it, and the fact that I could also mimic other horns with that with that with that controller i think what you're saying is it's cool to actually have the controller that's really more like the real instrument so then you can actually do the trills and you can do the what you need to do with the reed and the breathing and everything exactly the reed and the, and i think that's one of the biggest thing i love about wind controllers is that it demands out of me as a performer to breathe <laughs> yeah, the realness in it. I mean, that's kind of like having the fretboard and actually being able to, you know, a keyboard can't really replicate the fretboard. It can try and do things to make it. Right, right. But, but it's not the same as what you can do on a real guitar, you know. Well, I'm talking about phrasing. Yeah, right? even yeah, phrase, the phrasing on if a I'm gonna If I'm going to take a solo on a sax or... um you know, whatever it is, I, a horn that I have programmed that, and I'm using the wind controller, there is one inevitable thing. I will run out of air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's like there's a whole technique and like the breathing, like if you're playing on the keys, you never have that problem. And so, right. You don't no. Play. Yeah. You can go you all day long. And, but then that does the limitation. I think this is the thing that's interesting. Why I've always tell people limitations in music actually make the music. Right. So the limitation of a of a of a wind player is their breath. They can't be infinite breath. 
right? right. So you have to phrase things in a way that a human being would have to do it because they can't can't just keep I, on doing. I think it. that's a big part of expression. I mean, our yeah. humanity going into the instrument is is part of expression, and I think that's what makes the most beautiful music. But you know, yeah, I, I agree with that because I think that's that's why you know I like you know kind of lo-fi uh, acoustic type of performance where. I'm going to do something, you know, with some of my instruments, I'm going to probably use my Moog to, to, to get something that feels kind of authentic and, you know, feels more human than if I was going to go and, and do something off of one of my digital synths, because I'm trying to get some kind of feel that that's like more random. It's like more ha haphazard because it's like point in time. A lot of stuff I do on my Moog is point in time. It's hard to capture again, and and that in, in itself is the beauty of it. Is that, that is the beauty of it. Yeah, that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, no, I have a little, just a little handheld Tascam four track recorder. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really a field recorder, but it does four tracks, and you can bounce tracks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those before. Got a couple mics on it, and um. I'll just grab it, my Columba, and go for a walk. And because I always thought to myself, you know, what would happen if the world turned into dystopia and there were no more synthesizers and <laughs> no more DAWs? Oh, by the way, talking about DAWs, it doesn't matter uh, what you get. Um, but, man, I, you know, I love acoustic guitar players. Cause they can just strap on an acoustic guitar and just make their own entertainment wherever they go. I'm it's a little more difficult for me, but, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. but well, um, let's get one of these. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll find a good old hollow log and beat it with a stick and lay down a beat. Then I move over to the next track. I just take a recorder, you know, and just play with what I was like breathing, you know, a little recorder with the keys on it, you know, it's like any kind of wind I like having because then, you know, then you can play wherever you want to play. You know, if, if you feel that kind of jazz mood, you know, but that, that that's always cool to have acoustic instruments to do that. Ah, uh, I just remembered something. In the back, oh, I can't remember what the magazine was. It was probably some weird old comic book or something or something like that. When I was a little boy. Do you uh, remember Paya? I think they're still around, actually building parts and stuff. Mm. Uh, Paya Electronics. What did they make? What kind of? What did, like what kind of kits? They made, they made like, like, like yeah, like, electronic kits and stuff like that like for music. Where you could like build build like what little synthesizers or something, build oscillators. Yeah, a little mono thing that runs on battery, right? Mm, and. So like uh, and so, but there's a picture in the back. I'm man, I'm always probably less than 10. There was a picture of a guy sitting in a tree making music. He's just in a tree with that, with something he built, or did he just in the tree? He put the kit together, he's in the tree using it. Like battery yeah powered. yeah it was battery powered so he just had a pair of headphones on and a little keyboard and doing his little thing that sounds like 70s i remember radio shack i used to go to radio shack and they had a 
a bunch of like do-it-yourself kind of oscillator kit type things and um and i think mode made a work stat you could like, build it from scratch yeah that's right single yeah. oscillator kit and you could put, put it together and build your own synth but um yeah i think it's cool to you know that's what i kind of did with my euro rack <clears throat> i got into euro racks like four years ago and i like the idea that you could just go buy modules from anybody and then kind of build your synth the way you want right you can build your find your control unit find your oscillators find just pick you know you go on the net and you just pick and you read up stuff and say well i'm going to get my oscillator from this company i'm going to get my envelopes from this company i'm going to get all my other stuff and, and you just kind of slap it together and like well, well whether or not it's really going to work as good as like a roller <laughs> or a yamaha that it, it's all monophonic anyway it's not polyphonic but um right but but it just gives you this feeling that like this is mine right that you built yeah. it and it's yours and and because it's yours, you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to get into, uh, hopefully we're going to have um, another session that um, where we'll be able to um, get into some of the, the tacky head stuff. Oh, yeah. We can definitely dive into that now. We still got like a half hour to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you also got a huge list of questions in front of me. So. Uh, yeah, but we kind of bounce around with what we what comes into like mind. Um, so if you want to go deep, so where it, where where are we at? Well, we're at. I kind of asked about going to school, and and like you're working with the inventor part of you, um, where you kind of came up with this idea of building patches. But maybe you want to talk more about the inventor side of your work and beyond patches, what type of inventions you actually have come up with within synthesis. Well, the original breath controller um, for the DX7, I put in, uh, I think my first touch upon this was um, while I was working at Yamaha, but I, I'm going to take a divergence here from you. Um, uh, I'm going to tell you what happened next. So I'm on the road and I'm doing these, all these product clinics, right? And doing these shows. And there were two big shows every year of NAM, one in Anaheim and the other fluctuated in the Midwest, I think between Chicago and uh, Atlanta. And, uh, Boy, um, so I don't know, about a year into working for Yamaha, you know, I'm basically flying all over the place uh, every week. Every other day I'm on a plane, you know. Well, I get this call um, from my coordinator. And she says, we're pulling you off the road. Um be here next week in uh, Buena Park. And I said, okay, uh, maybe I can get some rest. <laughs> yeah, that being a road warrior is not cool. Unless yeah, you like, I was, unless you like it, maybe you like it, maybe you don't. <laughs> well, you can love it, but after time. Well, you, you, eating restaurant food every day might sound good until you do it too many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yamaha was never stingy. I mean, uh, they were, and this was the 80s. 
this was a very prosperous time in America. We have a low budget. You're not doing the Holiday Inn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I stayed in one Holiday Inn and I was like, what? Holiday Inn? <laughs> Most of the time I stayed at Marriott's. So yeah. I just remember the who, the who wrecked the Holiday Inn. That's what I remember. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, so I, I, I got pulled into the office. And uh, it was Toto that oh, yeah. was having difficulty programming the DX7. <laughs> Imagine that. Doggone thing was more complex with a little tiny window to read everything. And hey, even if you bought one of those big screens, it didn't really help you much. Um, uh, it's so uh, a lot of people just use the base patches because it was like so hard for some people to figure out. Well, nobody used anything but the base patches unless they bought some, or if they were lucky enough to uh, find some store technician that wasn't hogging them and and grab a couple banks from me. But um, that was. Uh, very interesting. So, and this was supposed to be a one-time thing. And it didn't end up being a one-time thing. It ended up that every artist relation, you know, because Yamaha would give people gear as long as they show the Yamaha name oh, when, when they play. When they play, so if they're in the video or they're on and, stage. And give it credit on the, yeah. Then they give you the gear. Yeah, they just gave the gear. Um, so here's David Page and Steve Picaro, who, by the way, are going to be uh, uh, Steve is going to be a guest on my channel here in the next uh, couple of months. Yeah, maybe announce that you're you're actually going to be launching your camp, right? Yeah, I'll. I'll, I'll... So here's what happened. <laughs> There was a beefier version of the DX7. And by beefy, I mean like it had a lot more modulation options, a lot of different things, but it was phenomenally expensive to build. That model number was which one? Uh, well, it started with the non-programmable version, which was called the GS1. Yes, one. Which basically looked like a big wooden box. <laughs> looked more like a piano than it did anything, and it really didn't have any controls. Is it kind of um, like a CS80 kind of form? No, CS80 had tons of knobs and whistles yeah, and bells. You it know, had the wood had the wood of it, but it didn't have the controls. Yeah, it had the wood of it, but it had zero controls. So um, now I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you a story here that um, probably not many people uh, know, and uh, certainly nobody outside the industry. So when I got into the room and was working with uh, Picaro and Page, um, here's what we had to do: we used a regular DX7. And then we had a list on a piece of paper of all of these other parameters, right? That the GS1 could do. 
And so I would take <laughs> a blind drunken guess <laughs> at some of these parameters. And so we'd ship that information over to Japan. They would turn around, program it, and ship an entire new GS1 to us. This thing weighed like 400 pounds. I don't know. It was yeah, those huge. were big, heavy machines back. You know, all these machines back then were like hard to break, break your back. <laughs> now we did this. Um, we did this like three times. <laughs> so the did, cost, did like a... <laughs> the cost was enormous. So on you the know, third time, did you? feel like you weren't making those those guesses yes you know actually by the second time i went oh i know exactly where that's coming from or i know exactly what that is and my friend those are the sounds that you hear on um the africa track yeah those are phenomenal that's i think that made a lot of people i remember when i first heard like what I always wanted to know what synthesizer was doing what back in the day. And then I heard, like, what's this BX7? Because I had kind of grown up, you know, with Hammond B3s, Mo Mini Moogs, you know, you know, VC3s, uh, Prophet 5s, Jupiter 8s. Yeah, the CS80 got, yeah, CS80. got munched in there, too. Yeah, the so. CS80s. But, but it's just like... When but the lead, the yeah. lead sounds are what I uh, the lead sounds are the marimba and the flute. Um, yeah, I think the precision of these kind of percussive metallic sounds and and more orchestral sounds that actually sounded like the instrument, you know, and I think that's what made people, at least I, back in the day, I was very impressed with the way the DX7 had that ability to to do the digital sounds. And it really kind of set aside <clears throat> between the analog world and the digital world. You started to see, well, why would you want a digital synth? And, it, and you started saying, well, wow, I can get these pianos, I can get these electric pianos, I can get these flutes, I can get these kind of percussive sounds. And, you know, I, I yeah, think that a, a great addition to any DX7 would be an Oberheim uh, or, uh, huh. Profit five, maybe. Um, profit five, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, those are the big like. Well, I'm I'm, I'm kind of a Jupiter eight guy, but I I do I do recognize the Profit five was used as heavy as the Jupiter, um, and some people like one or the other, but I kind of like both. But um, yeah, I just like that the pad, the kind of analog pad sound that is not really like trying to be like a real instrument it's kind of its own thing um, yeah. yeah and that's what i like about it um it's not trying to be a violin it's not trying to be a horn it's kind of its own right weird version of it um like the way the lead on a moog isn't really like anything that you've ever heard it's it's a moog <laughs> it's know? a moog yeah, yeah it <laughs> it's like if, if you get a bukla like a bukla is a bukla you hear yeah you, you can't like, beat wow, that ladder filter yeah, you can try to simulate it, but you can't beat it. Yeah, it's when the resonance drops off the bass. <laughs> it's like, what happened? It's like, oh, I got to get a state variable filter and, and not lose it. Um, but, um, 
my original mini moog i was lucky because um i got one of the last of the lines so i had the most stable oscillators oh yeah they got really stable near the end they got yeah. more temperature controlled where the ones that weren't temperature controlled would go crazy if you had them out like on the road <laughs> oh it took it a half hour warm up yeah yeah, yeah. That I've seen buddies that go just curse it because for it then when it gets hot, <laughs> you gotta retune it again. It's like okay, I drop it in, and now I dropped out. It's like bye. It's like the boat says, I'm done. I'm done for the day. Doesn't matter what you want to do. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, they got their own personality. It's like it's like my dog or my cat. It's like, hey, I'm done. You you can do what you want, but I'm done. <laughs> oh man this is this has been a fun evening with you i hope we get to do a little bit more there's a oh, ton yeah, more yeah. to talk about but yeah we um, go, yeah well we, we but, can i said we can go like uh like an hour 15 you know okay great so where do i take off from here now <laughs> well like we were talking about like how you got into your inventor stage and you kind of talked about how you, you hooked up the breath controller for the be able to do that oh. thing. And then you kind of segged into other things that i was asking you about your inventor stage and we talked about like how you came to work for yamaha we talked about your fm synthesis um but we may want to talk about because there's a lot of name checking we did before but i mean you you how did you come to work with people like quincy jones janet jackson you talked about toto but we heard that and we yeah and Stevie Nicks and Eddie Van Halen. Once I came off the road from uh, doing the product specialist gig, mm -hmm. um, then basically all my duties were was to work with the artists and um, was that and, do, and do the two NAM shows every year, you know, design and set them up. I'm sorry. Did they, did they put you in a department that was like to work with the artist? Was that called a certain type of department? Yeah. Artist relations. <laughs> if you're in artist relations, but from a technical standpoint, right? Well, from a technical standpoint, I was still under Tom Weber and Phil Moon and uh, my coordinator, Kim Swanson. So, and yeah, I, and I worked with the same group that I'd been working with. You know, so, but then I added Doug Butterfield um, and uh, Sasha, I can't remember her last name, but anyway, uh, they were in charge of artist relations mm -hmm. and that was keep the artists happy, right? So what I became their, uh, how to keep them happy. But like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it's like, are you primarily working on them when they're working with them when they're working on an album, or working with them on when they have to go tour, or is like it didn't matter? It's like a little bit whatever they needed. So after a year or so in this new role, what I would do is I would go into the studio sessions where I needed to be. So I worked with the artist probably for. I don't know, three months. Okay. And I wouldn't be with just one artist. I'd be bouncing around from anyway, uh, the list goes on and on. Um, but uh, 
I would spend a few months with each artist. And then I would jump on the road with them to make sure everything went perfect. And once I felt that, you know, things were cool, then I jumped back off the road and went right back into the studio with another so artist. Did, so do you have did do you have to kind of do knowledge transfer with the artist like road people so they could learn to do what you do so you could be replaced so you could actually go work with somebody else? Hey, yeah, and let's take Van Halen for example. Um, I jumped in the studio with Edward, and um, he had a key tech, right? That traveled with him anyway. Um, so yeah, he was there every minute of everything I did, looked over my shoulder, asked questions. I mean, I gave him everything yeah, I could. Sure. And then when we were out on tour for, oh, you know, I think it was only two months. Um, he goes, I get it. You know, I see where the little, <laughs> Or to knock the jukebox on the side and, and you know and do that kind of thing, but um, yeah. So what? Yeah, when they when they feel comfortable with their rig, because yeah, nobody's yeah. all the same. Yeah, everybody's different, but how they want to yeah. approach. It. But what's cool is like it's cool that you weren't didn't get pigeonholed to, to stay with any one group and become they become so dependent on you that you couldn't go work with other people. I think Dude, it's really. Cool. I went from Van Halen to Barry Manilow. Yeah, well, I think it's really cool <laughs> that, that you didn't make yourself like so indispensable that you got stuck with them, like one group. You know, that you were able to. Well, now there is a moment, and I still wonder to this day if I if I had made a different decision, how my life would have turned out. So. um Stevie Wonder asked to see the new DX7. And um what year was and, that? Which which, uh, which new one was it? It was the DX7 II. Um FD, you know, floppy drive. <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. I remember those. Um so here was my great pleasure. We were in the middle of a NAM show. People, noise everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And um, my division manager said, Kevin, you're probably the best person to show Stevie what's cool, what's happening. Of course, the DX7 I was standing at had all my patches in it. <laughs> You know, no stock shit for me. But anyway, I'm like, um, dude, my heart was beating out of my chest. Here standing next to me is Stevie Wonder. And, and I, I took his hand. He literally asked me to take his hand and show him what each button on the front panel did. And he got it like right away. So here we are with hundreds, maybe thousands of people swarming around, right? 
And here him and I are in our own little headphone world. <laughs> and then I started listening to Stevie play my patches. That must have been amazing because he has such a touch on the board. Yeah, I almost pooped myself. Um, <laughs> I, I can see that. I mean, so, you know, what a wonderful time. I spent maybe a half hour with him and he said thank you and it went away. And um, the next morning, you know, I'm there early before they open the gates and do all this other stuff. And um, Stevie's tour manager came up to me and said, uh, that he wants me to go on his tour. We're starting in Japan. That's not a bad place to start. <laughs> well, you got to understand, I'm a young kid now. By the way, Yamaha hired me when I was only 20 years old. That's an awesome thing to happen. <laughs> and, um, and so I made, because I was working with so many different artists and getting exposed to so many different things. I said no to Stevie Wonder. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. I know, but you know what? It's okay because you did, it wasn't that you didn't want to travel at that time. No, 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 no. It's just that I thought my opportunities were better instead of being his key tech, right? Yeah, yeah, you could be more or something else. I can do more things and not get pigeonholed, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Cause I, that's why I was wondering, because that, that was the beginning of the question. Like, if you get put into that situation too many times, then you might just get known as a key tech rather than what you became known for. Yeah. Which is and little did I know, but uh, <laughs> little did I know, but um, there was going to be something that grabbed my heart. And I knew there was something about it. I watched this PBS special when I was a young man. And uh, they showed the movie Jaws. Yeah, yeah. And the opening scene. With and without John Williams' music in it. Oh, yeah, John Williams. And the scene was horrible without the music. It di didn't music make suspense. <laughs> It didn't invoke emotion. And I realized the power in writing scores. Scores are and like so, everything. I mean, Star Wars, what Star Wars without God without that music? The yeah, those beautiful Wars, French horns. <laughs> yeah. If you, didn't, if you didn't have that 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 whole symphonic thing going on, would it be as impressive? Probably not. Right. And I Anyway, uh, that slowly leaked in next. So, uh, I mean, you can ask me about everybody. Oh, um, Quincy Jones. Yeah, he's a big, um, he's a big one. <laughs> I know, I digress. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a good place um, to continue. <laughs> I was in the... Um, um, oh, good grief. Burbank Studios. And it was Janet Jackson's first, her first album. And, um, that is the self titled one. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, I was just 
supposedly just taking a tour of the studio, right? Sorry about that. And, um, and, uh, we walk in the door and there's only one person in the room. And that was Quincy Jones. Now, he gave me an awful lot of good life advice that evening. I think we stayed there until one or two in the morning and we were listening to one of Janet Jackson's tracks. I, by the way, I didn't play on the album or do anything for it. But um, it's important in my life because he bought a boombox at Kmart. It sat in the back of the room and so he would literally mix dump it to the cassette take the cassette listen to it in the boom box some cheap you know yeah, $30 yeah. boom box so you can play and he'd the pull the tape and he said come on come with me and we'd get in his car and he'd pop the cassette in his car and he'd listen to it on his own speakers right I think it's it a does. great thing to do. <clears throat> I back in the day, you know, when I had my task cam, I would dump it down to a boombox. I I'd go and do a little cheesy master <clears throat> of dumping it down and then take it and put it into my little Nissan, you know, two-seater and then drive it down down the road to see well, how's this sound like for real? You know, so that's I think that's it, a good technique. It's invaluable if you're you know, and I knew about listening to reference material. I use uh, Steely Dan um, uh, for my reference material. And um, your favorite, you, you do actually know Don Donald Vega, right? Okay. Once again, here's another artist I didn't work with, but I did a photo shoot with him. Does that count? You <laughs> actually got to hang with him a little bit. But he did tell me some stories while we were hanging out. Uh, but anywho, um, yeah, I mean, I saw the value in, first of all, you can have $300 million monitors. Yeah, yeah. But if you burn it to a CD or grab the MP3 and take it to your car or take it to a boombox or listen to it on your phone mm -hmm. and then tell yourself, okay, I understand the limitations of the device, but do I have a clear, even mix? Yeah, you got a good of it. Then you know you're headed in the right direction. You know, yeah, you gotta take like, like, like <clears throat> something instead of waiting for months and months to get to the final master, it's sometimes good to see, you know, is this kicking or not? <laughs> the kind of short firm like, yeah, well, or does it not kick? <laughs> by like, that time you know the, you know at least your mastering engineer or if you're the mastering engineer you're not trying to polish a turd it's good to run it through the cycle a few times i mean what i watched quincy jones do it three times for one song until he goes all right that'll work for now <laughs> I think it's cool to do that because I think I, I kind of like what I kind of grew up doing because this maybe because of necessity that's what I did because of the gear I had. Um, 
but you know, I, I didn't want to go and over. I make so many different variations of the tracks I do that sometimes I want to see before I destroy my track by doing like too many overdubs. Maybe I should check it at like four overdubs and see whether or not I should keep on going. Because I think sometimes you, you find that like if you do too many just because you can, then maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> a diminishing return is what we call it. It happens yeah. after a singer also sings too many times tries to do too many retakes retakes yeah yeah diminishing return it's closer to the first three or four than than the like the last 50. <laughs> i would i would think even the honesty of the take right like the honesty of what the song was about right yeah and i mean that's in danger whenever you overdo it yeah sometimes it's better to walk away and come back another day you know yeah that's why i find it sometimes I've, I've had like people you know they did a voice memo recording of a song right for their vocal and then they go spend all this time right. with better, better microphones better this better that but it's actually the delivery of that first voice memo was so honest and so good i'd rather try to eq that and use that and so what they did before, what they did. After, I've been, I've after. been guilty of that too. Is a cat trying to capture the emotion, not necessarily the quality. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes the, that you know, you know, in certain places that you 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 can do that in the indie kind of alt alt world college radio world, where you're trying to get like the authenticity of it. Um, that's kind of like where I live. But yeah, we're we're at the hour mark. If you want to keep on going another fifteen minutes, we can keep on going. Well, it's up to you. You're the host, my friend. Yeah, I'm cool. Just, uh, we only cut it down because of our audio partners only want to run 75 minutes. That's why. <laughs> but um, we would like to go all night. But that's how they work. Um, <clears throat> so I think one of the other things that's cool since we, we have time on this, this episode is to cover, like, how did you get involved in the Grammy voting committee? Did you get selected? Do you? How do you get it, pick to be on that committee um first you have to have a a sponsee i guess somebody that's already in the academy um and then you have to give them a palette of work and i mean recent not like stuff he did in the 1930s i mean like oh, so it has to be within the last five years or ten years or yeah and uh, you know whether it's producing engineering is songwriting is it whatever it is well i ended up in the producer and engineering wing and that's okay it's the story of my life <laughs> that's interesting so it sounds like like you're in that wing but you you had aspirations that you wanted to get somewhere else but you ended up in that position so do well, you have feelings about that in one way or the other First of all, I'm not the greatest lyricist in the world, and I will say that, but I am a good songwriter. And, uh, but perhaps I'm in just the right place. And see, we don't vote for every category. It would be impossible. I mean, come November, mm -hmm. I'm thrashed with CDs and things to listen to and all this stuff. And it's like, I pick only the categories that I feel qualified to vote on. And they allow me to do that. 
what do you have a particular category uh is it based on what is coming in or what you really feel um no. is- uh, there's a, a a dedicated list of categories mm-hmm. so like you stay in that zone yeah just throw something out here i'm not allowed to talk about the categories but um you know like like of course we all know best album and best vocalist and all that stuff but um some of these underlying things are like best engineering and and uh best use of an environment and i mean (laughs) it's it's crazy stuff but it's like I'd rather spend my time judging what I'm good at, not judging whether old girl or old boy wins the woo woo on Sunday night, you know? <laughs> I get it. Oh, I'm hoping some of these changes that are happening at the Grammy Academy, are, they're getting rid of the console, the board. Okay. And so our direct votes, um, Go right to the end tally. So you feel like it's gonna be better. I am. I'm hoping so. Um, and yeah, this whole wave—and I don't want to get into political things—but this whole wave of political correctness it goes back and forth, and all these things, and and it's so blatantly obvious that there that someone is filtering at some point um because of race and gender yeah yeah and uh but i'm looking uh possibly to move over to the cmas i was a member for a while i really enjoyed it that's cool that's a different totally different zone (laughs) yeah but no the the grammys was something where i um First of all, I was invited, and then second, I had to put up the goods, or um, I wasn't in. Mm-hmm. So I had to send my own resume, so to speak, of my music material, my, you know. Well, it's cool. I mean, they, I think it's awesome to, to be in, they, they, just the notoriety of it, whether or not you feel that it, it, it's, um, like, once you're in it, it might be feel different than what it looks like to people on the outside. <laughs> um, I look at it and say, like, wow, that's awesome. But you, like you're inside of it. You get like, well, I don't know. <laughs> are, you, are you excited? About it's, it? it's not just a, it's a, it's hard work, man. <laughs> it's not some kind of glossy thing. You actually have to do a lot of work. <clears throat> yeah. I I've got a, I've got a beautiful plaque from, uh, well, what will be next year, five years ago, uh, thanking my, um, you know, participation in the producer engineering. But one of the lovely things about being a part of this wing of the Recording Academy is that really us tech guys, we don't pull any punches. There's no politics. So you're going to say, is, is it good or is it, you know, some not something not good, which I could say you know what it really is <laughs> yeah yeah you know what i mean you know. It, i think it's like like anybody like in the film industry the technical people to do the special effects or do the sound effects do the sound engine they're gonna say is that good or was it 
you know, it's like, yeah, because you know, if it's bad, it's not going to come through. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, but I'm going to switch gears to a little bit because it's something I think is really cool. And we're going to probably spend more time on it next time. But you are working on this new AI music assistant project. And I don't know how much you can talk about it because you're working on it. But we'd like to, you know, maybe you tell people as much as you can about it. Um, let me take you back to 1986. And I created the verse the first voice voice controlled studio and it was rudimentary commands voice commands did this you know start stop sequencers rewind you know bar ahead blah 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 um but i never touched that because it never had any understanding and so for the last two years I have been working diligently with uh, um, Google TensorFlow and um, and IBM, and I um, finally ran into some good friends that helped me uh, put a little personality on top of it. Um, but uh, she controls a camera in my office. So she's watching my hands, she's listening to my voice, and she knows every piece of gear in my room. Think about a MIDI controller that can MIDI learn, right? Machine learning is the big thing, you know. And, well, once she has it, it's like she takes control of the unit. I mean, she knows, she knows more about my P6 uh, controller than probably I do. Um, but I, guess but, said, I think we've talked before and the problem i guess in today's world is there's so much instant gratification that out of the box machine learning you know we use it in i in 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 um financial the financial world and the banking world is using machine learning and we realize it's like it's not like out of the box gonna do it it's gonna has to learn and i guess accountants are more patient maybe <laughs> more patient than maybe music people so we kind of understand it's going to take months for it to understand our product catalog and our setup but but maybe in a music world it's hard to get somebody to realize it's not going to give you something like today when you buy it today <clears throat> yeah so i i'd love to talk about it um amy really is i've quieted her down for this interview but um <laughs> Um, yeah, no, you know, she's, she's on a, uh, an algorithmic reinforced learning method that, um, she gets to know me, how I play, how I talk, you know, and I think that's valuable. If you think about that, like, I think we've talked a little bit, right? You said, like, if you are a musician, right, and you've got this AI person, you know, you know, virtual assistant <laughs> that, that is sitting there and patient enough, and you do a four-hour dive session, right? Like, I'm a modular synthesis, and I've got all my MIDI signals 
CC signals going back and forth on my mural rack. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. If she was watching me while I'm doing that, and I don't have to go and take the pictures of my CV, right? She would know what I was doing and she could tell me what I was doing. And maybe she could suggest different things oh, to do, right? That would be, that would be super simple for Amy because Amy's doing things beyond that. Um, we've been developing a database in conjunction um with uh ibm and uh one thing amy has learned is how i play bass and uh she can mimic me in other words if i lay down a piano part and say amy lay down uh, a bass line in the style of me she does a damn good job <laughs> of, of emulating me. So, so then I, I trained her with, from the IBM uh, laboratory stuff, I trained her with Paul McCartney. Oh, wow. So it's like, or mimic, mimic okay, Amy, lay down a baseline in the style of Paul McCartney, right? Do you and, feel that you can actually lay that down, what she does, and use it like in a track you would use? Yeah, it's not it's not stealing from Paul McCartney for crying out Pete. He's actually just inspired by his style and it's not the clone. It's inspired by thousands of his songs. Okay, so right. it's taking like his whole catalog and then figuring out what to do. And so it's not any one song, it's like all the songs predictive encoding of what he would probably do wow now that 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 that's very valuable i mean that's that's like like you know back in the day when we had the casio cord and we're like oh this is pretty cool but that's like this is way beyond casio cord <laughs> but what my goal is is you know and here's my marketing dilemma of course and that is you can put these tools in somebody's hand mm -hmm. but it roughly takes two to three months before and it doesn't matter what you call it it you know it's a thing it's not a female or a male or anything like that you know i just call my namey you know well, i think it's the type of person and I, you know i i actually talked with a lot of producers like indie producers and you know we're kind of in our bedroom producer type mode right we spend a lot of hours in our own you know world and it's not instant gratification you know we spend a lot of time at our craft and i think it's that type of person that is you know by themselves working on their art right? <laughs> they could take advantage of a tool like that you know i think it's a person that that is experimenting with all types of things and doesn't feel like they have a lot of boundaries um i think that type of person is going to be the kind of person that would really appreciate what, what you're doing i i see a an entire world of composition where you're collaborating with musicians from and have long since passed away yeah that'd be awesome because if you can take their catalog of material and you can extract what you want out of that yeah, and that's part of what you know i'm also doing because i'd love to give you a 
like a cartridge track or something and says, here's Paul McCartney. Here's. I would like to be able to jam with like the Velvet Underground, you know. See, and those those kind of requests are very possible. (laughs) I mean, depending on how much material I can, you know, pull together and feed into the damn box. (laughs) There's different periods. You got the loaded period where they sounded more more polished. You got white light, white heat, it's just total noise. You got the first album that's very, like, you know, well-crafted, low vignettes these stories well right now i'm working on groove and individual instruments so would it be possible to get a feel of like a whole band like the way the velvets are because everybody knows what the velvets kind of sound like that kind of lo-fi feel with is it more individual instrument or could you get a whole band's feel well, I've uh, I've steered away from some of the hard things. <laughs> Give me a break. Um, but um, I suppose it would. What I do is pick out a certain instrument and then pick out a different instrument, the same song, roll it, roll it, roll it through, and then feed that in and let it grind, you know? And um, after about 100 songs, you... Uh, um, and sometimes it was sloppy. I mean, if you don't do enough inputs, yeah. it's sloppy. So, yeah, it's but I mean, this is the, this is like babies, yeah. Right? Yeah, like little kids. You can't just slap their face and go, grow up and drive me a car. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's hard to go from like zero to a million miles an hour, you know. I know, but as soon as I tried to do that initially... And um, one of the reasons why actually the AI assistant is actually a side. And I will tell you about this, I guess, uh, on another session. But yeah. it's actually not the primary. Not the primary goal. No, it's part, <laughs> part of the whole picture. You got a bigger, so he's got a, Kevin's got a bigger picture. We, we'll talk about it in part two. Um, we have gone a little long, but I think it's been really cool. They were talking with a guy. It's oh yeah, what's the, what's that? A board from the BX7? Or is that the board? Find out the, next uh, time. Find out next time. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're very happy to have had had you on the show. Um, we will live streaming, and uh, we'll send you the links. You know, the whole world can see us on our channels, but we'll send you the permanent links um, so you have them. Mr. Ghost, you're the best. Yeah, we'll talk to you again, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, we remember your show is starting when? Um, we're we're looking at probably July at this point. We're um we're gonna collaborate with you though, right off the bat. Yeah, so I'll I'll be a guest on your show if you want me to come on. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna be showing all sorts of crazy, you know, keyboard techniques and you know, odd stories, and <laughs> at some point, like I, I wasn't ready to play this time. I guess the only thing I could play is my little OPZ. That's the only thing I can play. Which um, I 
so it's a little outro of a theme song I built for this for the for this whole thing. Very nice, Keith. I can't get it to do what I want because she was on too long. She had she heated up. <laughs> That's just a little preview. Talk to you later. Thanks.